Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, a podcast from Summit Dog Rescue in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Emily. And I'm Libby. We're both professional dog trainers with multiple certifications in dog training and behavior. Together, we have more than two decades of experience in dog rescue. We want to share everything we've learned along the way with other folks involved in dog rescue, sheltering, fostering, and adoption, and anyone who just loves dogs. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. Today, we are so thrilled to bring you another interview with Dr. Patricia McConnell. We first interviewed her around this time last year, and if you haven't heard that one yet, definitely go back and listen because we referenced that episode several times. Um, That was about trauma, decompression, and going slow when you're bringing a new rescue dog into your life. And I feel like this conversation is kind of the part two of... You know, if last year we were talking about going slow as far as all the human components, this year we're talking with her more about going slow as far as your dog introductions in the household goes. Yeah, it's a super important conversation. You know, in rescue, success with the resident dog can make or break a dog's placement. So it's important to understand how to set everyone up for success, read cues, put management in place, you know, just do a little extra on the front end to give everybody the biggest chance of succeeding. We have placed more than a thousand dogs since um, the beginning of our rescue. So we have seen pretty much every possible scenario of how dog meets can go. And I'd say almost once a week, we get emails of people wanting to surrender their dogs to us because of intra-household dog aggression. So this is just such a big and important topic. Absolutely. And, you know, we're obviously just scratching the surface in an hour-long conversation. But, you know, thinking of dog-dog relationships, it's kind of like a marriage. It takes a little bit of work to keep things successful. And, yeah, sometimes it's just not a good fit. But we can do the things that we know will help everyone succeed. This was a great conversation. I also loved um, when she spoke about the four to 10 day window where people are like, "Uh uh-oh, I think I made a mistake. (laughs) And I think she needs to come up with a new rule. Since she was the one who came up with the amazing rule of threes, three days, three weeks, and three months for your dog to settle in. I do think we've seen very often that four to 10 day window. So people should know they're not alone. And if you hit bumps in the road, just take a deep breath and maybe reach out for some help. Definitely. A little support, a little management um, that can go a long way in making a successful dog-dog integration happen. So in this episode, we referenced several things. All of those are in the show notes. There's an awesome webinar that Dr. McConnell did with ASPCA. Um, Also, definitely, we talk about management a lot. So check out our episode on management with Mary Angeli. We'll put that link in the show notes. And we have a really fabulous video showing this parallel walk that Dr. McConnell references, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Great. And we're just so grateful to Dr. McConnell for coming back on. And Libby's going to read you her bio if you don't know who she is. (laughs) (laughs) Patricia McConnell needs no introduction for a lot of our listeners, but she has some amazing credentials and a 
fabulous career. She's just a titan in the dog training world. So uh, Patricia McConnell, PhD, is a zoologist and certified applied animal behaviorist emeritus and has made a lifelong commitment to improving the relationship between people and animals. She is known worldwide as an expert on canine and feline behavior and dog training and for her engaging and knowledgeable dog training books, DVDs, and seminars. Patricia has seen clients for serious behavioral problems since 1988 and taught for 25 years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Amazing. Well, without further ado, here is our conversation with Patricia McConnell. Hello, Dr. Patricia McConnell. Welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. Hey, it's really fun to be here. Thank you for asking me. Uh, we're so grateful that you took the time once again. So before we dive into the how of introducing new dogs and managing a multi-dog household, which we just thought that you were the perfect person to talk to about this, um, often in rescue, we have people who would be willing to take fosters, but they're a little worried about bringing in a new dog in their home, which already has one or two dogs. Sure. So can we discuss why it's important to learn and prepare before bringing home a second or third or fourth dog? You know, I think sometimes we have this general belief that dogs are dogs. They're social. They'll figure it out. They'll work it out. <laughs> Just dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, oh, how long do we have? Like an hour for this question? <laughs> <laughs> Can I work with that before? If that's yeah. as far as we get, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That would probably be okay. Because because there's so much. It, I mean, it's a great question that you asked. And there's so much in there. Look, I guess the first thing I want to say is that one of the things that I think really often helps people to keep in mind is that when you decide to get a, to bring a new dog into your house, whatever the circumstances, you decided it, right? You didn't like have it happen to you. You know, UPS didn't show up and say, here's your dog. Oh, what, you didn't order it? You know, you've thought it through. You know what's happening. You're expecting it. Um, the dogs know nothing, right? Mm -hmm. They know nothing. So all of a sudden, somebody puts them in a car. All of a sudden, they go to a strange place. All of a sudden, there's two other dogs there. All of a sudden. So, so we need, you always need to think when you're bringing in a, a, a new dog in that they're sort of in shock, you know? Um, even the really rambunctious ones, often those are those, you know, those dogs that look like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I had a ton of clients who would say to me, oh, he's just so overly friendly. You know, the dog would come into my office and jump on the table and start chewing on the computer and lick my face all over and crawl down my mouth and, you know, bounce off the walls. And they were like, oh, he's just so exuberant. And I was, I would say like, he's desperate. You know, he's actually desperate. You know, this isn't happiness. This is like panic, you know, or form of. So the first thing to keep in mind is that the dog knows nothing. And so in order for the best chance of success, you know, the more you can think through sort of the, I, well, first of all, why, why are you doing it? I mean, we, you know, that, that's the first question I would actually ask is not how, but like, why, you know, have you thought through 
why are you getting this dog? You know, fostering, I must just go with fostering because, you know, that's a situation which we know somebody needs to take this dog, get it out of a shelter. Wonderful, wonderful, um, gracious, kind choice of somebody to take this dog in. So like, let's say it's just, it's going to be a foster and you have two dogs already. So um, one, of, one of the things that I think is really important is to set everything up for success as best as you can. And now I, I'm sort of sliding into how, and I think I'm getting off your question a little bit, but I guess, so let me get back to your question before we get into the how, because one of the other things to think about is that, um, you know, they're just dogs. Well, yeah, they're, they are, they are, that's who they are, they're dogs, but they're individual, they're sentient individuals with, with different personalities, different experiences, different expectations, um, just about different everything, you know, except for their species and maybe or maybe not their breed. And um, they, you know, they, as I said before, they sort of, they don't know what's gonna happen to them, you know? And, and so we don't even quite know how they're going to behave when something completely unexpected happens. So Dr. McConnell, just like humans have different personalities and different needs and desires, dogs are the same, right? Yeah, right. They're, well, especially if they're all one breed and especially if they're golden retrievers. All golden retrievers, exact, you know, are out of Disney cartoons. Um, So, yeah, I mean, of course they're not. You know, they're sentient individuals with different experiences, different backgrounds, different breeding, different everything. And so, you know, one of the things you need to think about when you're bringing a new dog in is who are, you know, who are they? You know, how is how is dog one, resident dog one, how do they feel about all other dogs. Is it different in the house than it is at the dog park or on a walk or on a walk with a friend or playing with my friend's cattle dog in another yard, you know? So, so the personality of the dog, the context of dog, dog interaction, so many people will tell me, Oh, I've heard this thousands, literally thousands of times. This dog just loves everybody, you know, except he loves everybody being like like other dogs outside off leash in a park but not in the living room you know i mean just as an example actually i i have two border collies right now skip and maggie and i was looking for after willie died i was looking for another male to bring in it was really important to me that maggie adored this dog and um she met two dogs who one we had for three weeks she was like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. But then, then we got Skip and they met out at, as is often appropriate, they met outside. I was comfortable doing it both off leash based on what I knew, um, fenced area, perfectly safe area. Maggie had been a lot. She's very comfortable there, but not on territory. And they met and they did this little sort of tentative little flirty thing. And then they started playing and running and running and running and running, just like, just like Maggie did when she met Willie. So I was like, oh, this is so good. But then I brought him home and I knew Maggie perfectly well would be terrified of him in the house. He's a great big, huge male. 
And um, there aren't a lot of that many other dogs who come into the house. Anyway, so I kept them separate for weeks. I mean, I managed them really carefully. They are best friends. They adore each other. But because I knew Maggie, because I knew her personality and because I knew his uh, as well as I could at that point, you know, I knew, you know, that informed how I would introduce them. And so the more you can know about dogs personalities, obviously you can't always, you know, if it's a foster, it comes from one context, goes to another. But the more you can know, the better. And if you don't know, my generic advice to just about everything is just be really cautious, be really slow, be really careful. It's so hard to fix a mess, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, one mess can take you a year to fix or mm-hmm. if ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and just prevention is worth is, you know, better than the cure, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit in our, the questions that we planned to ask. But I'm really interested in the concept of dogs behaving differently toward other dogs in different contexts. And we see that so much in rescue and sheltering, you know, where in the shelter, the dog's fine, loves other dogs, but we, you know, get them into a foster home and they're totally different. Can you explain that a little bit and what's going on there? And I love that you bring that up because it's so important. You know, when I was seeing clients, I cannot tell you how many clients I saw who said, who were really upset, They were either angry or they were scared because the dog was absolutely for sure house trained or the dog was great with other dogs. Right. The dog was X and then he came home and then he was Y. And um, let, let me let me just start talking about that specifically with a couple of examples of other species. So. I wrote a Facebook post not too long ago and uh, um, about about the fact that the person who shears my sheep said I could prevent my sheep from being aggressive to each other after they were shorn because they would like, you know, like National Geographic, like, you know, they would they would back up and slam into each other really hard. And there were there was one year where somebody was really going to get hurt. I mean, it was really serious. So I wrote this post and talked about how my shears said you could use perfume once they're shorn. Some of their scent is gone. You could use perfume. You spray all of them with the same scent and it decreases the aggression. So I did that. It did. It did decrease the aggression, at least it subjectively seemed to. Made the barn smell like a whorehouse, which was <laughs> not that I've ever been in one, but that's sort of what I imagine it would smell like. Um, uh, but then I got all this this feedback, and some of it was really pointed, and that's a nice way of saying it. It was like, you don't know what you're talking about. I've had sheep for 40 years, and I've had thousands of them. We have flocks of 500 here and 2,000 there. I've never seen anything like that. You're crazy. You're making that up. And it's like, I have 12 sheep, right? And there's no ram. And the people who are writing me have flocks of 500, right? So of course they behave differently, you know? And But I, I should, in, in their defense, I should have said, you know, this very well might be context specific. Um, but just, so that's just one species. But the other example, it's just us. It's just us. Are you behaving exactly like you do 
when you're with your girlfriends at their birthday party right now? No, I'm not. You know, <laughs> we all act differently in different contexts. We all do. And so, of course, dogs act differently in different contexts. And so the, the big ones that I see are, and I'm sure you do too, I'm curious if you have the same experiences. One is house training. It's just relentless. It's, you know, so I always tell people, if, if I've heard like this dog is house trained, I'll say that dog is house trained in that house. This dog is not house trained in this house. Um, you just don't know what's going to generalize. You know, you, you have no idea what's going to generalize. So house training is a big thing that doesn't necessarily generalize. The other, the other issue is, um, is a dog's responses either to, to unfamiliar people or unfamiliar dogs. So dogs who are by themselves can often, in my experience, be more um, protective, uh, defensive, reactive. Um, I'm, I'll just go back to Maggie. Maggie's a perfect example. Maggie was nothing like my Willie, who was that super reactive for a couple of years, dog, dog, aggressive dog. Um, Maggie was never that bad. So I never worked as hard at it. So we'd be out walking somewhere, you know, she's on a leash and another dog starts to walk by. Maggie would just be like, <laughs> and I'd be like, Maggie. <laughs> so that's all it was. But when I got Skip, and she was like that with Willie, right? I got Skip and Skip is like, hi, everybody. I'm happy to meet all of you. And Maggie, like, I never, I was never uncomfortable with other dogs. What are you talking about, Tricia? Like, if Skip is walking two, two feet ahead of me, I'm good. I'm mm -hmm. fine. You know, wow. that's just one tiny context, right? That's just one tiny context. So I've seen dogs who were nervous about unfamiliar people when they were living alone in a house rather than a foster family. Mm -hmm. I've seen, and then the third category is dogs within the household. You know, you get you get a situation where um, maybe the foster has seven dogs, or they come from a shelter where there's there's you know kennel after kennel after kennel, and the dog doesn't maybe spend a lot of time with the dogs, but it's surrounded by other dogs. It's not alone, mm -hmm. and then you send it to a place where there's where there's one other dog, not seven, just one. Um, and they behave completely differently. So I don't, I'm going on too long about this. Side, no, it's great. It's but great. it's so important. It's just so mm -hmm. important for people to understand that nobody can predict. Right. Nobody can predict how a dog is going to behave in a context it's never been in. Right. It's so much like us. If you think about it, like I'm generally a friendly person, but there are certain contexts where I would not be friendly. Or, you know, if, if I was going to date... I would want to carefully choose the person I would date. I wouldn't just say, we're both humans, right. so hey, <laughs> move in with me, you know? Right. So, yeah. We're, so we're having some... We're Americans, you know? Right. <laughs> exactly. We both speak like English. Retrievers, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. great point. Yeah. So we, before we hit record, we mentioned your fabulous webinar that you gave um, for the ASPCA in 2014, and it answers a lot of these questions in or the next couple of questions I'm going to ask in depth. So we'll link that for our listeners in the show notes. But I do have a question that I want to get to, even if we don't have time to go really in depth with it. Okay. Given that we have so many variables and different contexts for dog-dog interactions, mm -hmm. are there 
any best practices that we can land on when it comes to introducing dogs yeah. who we hope will yeah. live together. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And and this is the great thing about this is it's not really rocket science. You know, it's it's the hardest part, I think, is learning to read a dog really well. Mm. So, you know, one of the best practices is to be able to read dogs and to know when a dog goes still and stiff and closes its mouth, something intense is going on and you need to pay attention, right? Um, so that that's probably the part that takes the most skill. But the rest of it is discipline and patience, <laughs> which granted discipline and patience are, you know, and certainly not <laughs> my, they're not always my best skill either. So Mine neither. <laughs> no, no, not you, Libby. I'm very sympathetic. Um, example, I actually just had friends introduce a new cat into their household and I told them exactly how to do it. You know, do not just bring the new cat and put it in the house. They had all kinds of ways to sort of manage it carefully. Day two, they just put the new cat in the house. <laughs> it was like, oh, worked out great actually, but they were very, very lucky that it did. So, um, so best practice is I would say, um, and again, I know you don't want to be too specific, but best practice is in general, slow going and little pressure. So what does that mean? So that means, so for example, how do you, you know, what's the first date look like? You know, that's, that's a really important question. And I know, I think I talked about that a lot in the seminar, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Um, but so, but so for me, best practice is um, for a lot of people, it's, it's, Two dogs on a leash, very far apart, right? They're maybe 15, 20 feet apart. And one is walking one way and the other is walking the other way. So they're walking like this and they're walking like this. And then you switch, keeping a lot of distance in between the dogs so they can smell each other's urine. That's what I want. I want them to investigate each other's urine because that's one of the first ways they get to know each other. You know, there's some really nice dog park research about how quickly dogs pee as soon as they get into the gate. And, and it, we don't know exactly why, but the best hypothesis is that they are providing information. You know, this is my Facebook page. Here you are. Um, I'm a female and I just ate some liver and, uh, you know, who knows what they're getting, right? But they're getting something and it's important. And it's so it's low stress. So the other dog is 15 feet away. Dog, you know, dog, let's just say it's, you know, I don't know, Sam and Dixie, you know. So Dixie gets to smell Sam's urine. Sam gets to smell Dixie. The hard part then is that everything else that happens next depends on what happens then. And that's where reading dogs is really important. Um, and having somebody who's done this a lot, if you possibly can, is really important. So if everything looks, if the dogs look loose bodied, open mouth, you know, waggy tails, really loose, no stiffness, no closed mouth, um, no glaring, no staring, um, or no looking away, you know, you also want to watch for really obsessive sniffing. I think when dogs are, some dogs are really nervous. Don't, have you found that? They just start just sniffing like crazy. Um, so, you, you know, you're looking for the absence of stiffness. You're looking for looseness. You're looking for the absence of sort of some kind of like, you know, desperate compulsive kind of behavior. Um, 
looking for an open mouth, you're looking for maybe a play bow, you know, that would be lovely. You're looking at sort of casual looks, really soft eyes. And if you get that, then if you possibly can, I would let I would let dogs, if possible, off leash in a fenced area or somewhere where it's totally, totally safe. And that's just almost always a fenced area. Uh, if you don't know one of the dogs, right? You just don't know what's going to happen. So that's that's the beginning, you know. Now, what happens next, of course, depends. You know, we could get into the weeds there, and I don't want to go too far. But but that 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 example with Maggie and Skip is actually a good one because I skipped that first part. I felt confident I could do that. I knew Maggie so well. I knew a lot about this dog, and um, I was watching them like a hawk. Although of course I was like standing, you know, away, sort of looking like that breathing. I, I was, I was monitoring my breathing. I was being really careful to not like you know, <laughs> with this big bug eyed aggressive look on my face. Um, and uh, so I skipped that first step, let them loose in this, in this field, but I could also see Maggie was really intrigued, but she was a little nervous, you know, so then I went back to that, like, okay, so Skip is going to go in his crate. Maggie's going to go in the living room. I'm going to have gates up between all the doors so that he can never, like, surprise her or scare her. They're only going to see each other up the hill in the big fence pasture. So it takes them up the hill in the big fence pasture and let them play up there and then bring them down and manage the household really carefully. So, again, that's just, you know, what happens next based on is based on what happened before. So that's that. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is if you have a a successful and I'm maybe we should air quote successful initial meet and greet because it it really is hard to tell exactly what's going on. Um, But let's you know, a fight doesn't break out at the bare minimum. No yeah, blood. no blood. Successes, <laughs> <laughs> no blood. Yeah. So you know, all parties are are comfortable moving forward. Right. Um, how predictive is that of long term success in your experience? Well, I you should yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that, but then I'm gonna ask you that because mm-hmm. I think you, given what you do, you know, I think you have a lot to say about that. So my, well, I wish there was research. Hmm. Was there was research. My subjective observations are that it depends. <laughs> that whole answer <laughs> I keep coming back to. It depends. So, I mean, I have certainly seen meet and greets that seem very smooth. You didn't see any sign of any tension. And then, say it was two dogs, you know, resident dog and a new dog. I have seen those go really smoothly. And then, three weeks later or two months later, all of a sudden, you start to see a lot of tension between the dogs. One dog starts getting really possessive of the objects, you know, and then all of a sudden there's fights going on. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen that plenty of times, you know, but I've also seen plenty of times where dogs did really well on the first, you know, all went smoothly. Everything was loose and relaxed and everybody seemed friendly and amenable, no signs of distress in any way. And then, um, People completely just throw caution to the wind and throw the dogs together and they're done and everything is great for the next 12 years. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so how predictive is it? I mean, it's, you want it to go well, right? Um, I mean, I guess another question is how predictive is a bad encounter? 
Mm, so that's I'm, a good question. I have a thought about that, but I want to throw it back to you because I'm really, you guys have a lot to say. What, what is your experience with this? I was just thinking about that when you said that. And I think because we read your Feeling Outnumbered book probably six or seven years ago, <laughs> we have had pretty good experience with if that first meet goes well, we really work with our fosters and adopters to then have that management and separation and working with individual dogs. We we work so hard to have them not just throw all caution to the wind. Right. Right. So I think that's why we've been pretty successful. And I think it's one reason we wanted to talk about this was that, yeah. you know, every once in a while you do hit that bump in a road. So it's not right. like we're totally perfect, but just going from the first date being well, not assuming that the next step is like happily ever after and taking right. those steps that you outline in the book and making sure you do your training and your management and your calm work yeah. with mm -hmm. them. And it's been pretty good for us. I agree with that. And I would say that um, almost without exception, when we have problems, it is, you know, we get on the phone with the people and, okay, so explain what happened, how, you know, they got along at the meet and greet. And there is some kind of explanation about, well, they were doing so well together. And we thought that we, you know, we just took up the baby gates because they were doing so well. And then X, Y, Z happened. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like you said, you they rushed the process a little bit. Right. Patience and discipline is not, not what our species is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's understandable. Yeah. It's understandable yeah. because, yeah. you know, we, we want to see the dog's succeeding and when things are going well we want to keep it going well and we think you know we're in a, a good place and so I understand why people do it it's just in my experience that that's usually um, a place where things go wrong and you know I'm really you know animal behaviors like me are really biased because who do we see you know, people call and make an appointment to say, like, I just got a new dog two months ago and everything is perfect. Everything's going great. Foster people are out there. And they're just so helpful. It's like, I don't really have any questions, but I thought I'd drive all the way here and, <laughs> right. <laughs> and spend 150 bucks to tell you. Right. But um, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I did. I probably saw more trouble, you know, than you guys did. But I totally, I just, I totally get how I love that you guys are so careful about managing things and sort of keeping general things in mind and not just, you know, throwing them together in a mosh pit. And, um, and, and I'm sure you also do a lot of really careful, thoughtful selection, right? Which I'm sure you haven't talked about that, but I'll bet you do it, um, which makes a huge difference. The, what, one of the things, getting back to that, that, that question about what is a bad, quote, bad, problematic, let's say, um, first initial meet and greet mean? And one of the things I've learned, and I don't know how universal this is, but I've seen it with clients. I've seen it with my dogs. I saw it with Maggie with those two potentials that we brought in, is neither dog would look at each other. And I've seen that with clients' dogs. It's like, so there was, you know, back to, you know, who there were, Sam and Rita, whoever, you know, <laughs> make these dogs up. So Sam and Rita never growled, never went stiff, 
never went after each other, but never looked at each other. You know, never just wouldn't look at each other. You know, there was one dog that was here and Maggie would just never look at that dog for three weeks. That dog's not here. And the dog was a perfectly friendly, there was nothing aggressive about this dog. She just didn't like him. She just didn't like him. Um, and, and that mattered to me. You know, it might not matter as much to some people. So, so in a way, you know, that line about, um, oh, what writer wrote something about like, you know, all, all have, so there are no good stories in happy families, you know, all, all, all family tragedies, you know, are, are different, but, you know, all happy families are all the same. And so there's sort of nothing to write about. Um, I think, I think it's a little trickier when the first meeting doesn't go smoothly in a way, because again, it could just be like, everybody looks fine, but nobody will look at each other. And that could resolve very nicely. You know, maybe somebody's a little nervous. Maybe somebody's uncomfortable. That's fine. Don't force them to look at each other. Like, that's fine. But, if you know, so, but that might turn into like, I just don't ever want to deal with this dog. Um, and so you can get like, I'm not going to look at that dog on one hand. And on the other hand, you could, you know, you can get like one dog goes after another one. You know? <laughs> right. So there's a big range in between. Um, and that, I think that's harder for people who aren't skilled to evaluate. And I think it's actually harder for any of us to evaluate because I don't think it's necessarily a deal breaker, you know, until you've had some more time. Now it might be that a, a potential foster family, I mean, they have every reason and right to say like deal breaker. I don't want to do, you know, this may work out, but I don't know. And it may not, I don't want to deal with this. This is hard. Bringing a new dog into your house is very disruptive and absolutely exhausting. I don't know anybody who isn't like, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I don't blame anybody for saying like, no, this is a deal breaker. But I don't know that it means it really would have been if they'd had another week or two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to kind of your three-day, three-week, and three-month rule. How do you think that applies to the building of the relationship between the two dogs? Yeah, you're bringing in, yeah. Like, the, the one yeah. I, I, I made up with absolutely no science behind it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I talked about it all the time. And it really does seem to, in a very sloppy it, it, way. It does. Oh, it really does. We hear it all the time. We tell people, like, just, it's only been five days. Just you know, keep going at this pace or even slow it down. And yeah. inevitably we have had people like balk, like one weekend be like, I don't think I can do this. Right. And with our support, like three weeks in, they're like, oh, it's getting better. Yeah. And then three months they're like, oh, did I ever actually say that I wanted to return this dog? Because right. it's going so great. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm, I'm gratified that you've had the same experience. I mean, it's just all based on observations. And the observation is that, First of all, as I mentioned earlier, is that dogs are in shock, right? So, you know, how many, I mean, oh, I had so many clients who picked a dog who was quiet at the shelter. All the other dogs was barking and Roscoe was sitting in the back and not barking. It's like, oh, now Roscoe is a beagle who's barking his <laughs> head off, you know, after on day four, you know. So, so you just don't know who a dog is. Until they've been there for three days, at least for at least, at least, at least for three days, because they're just they're just stunned. You know, they're just in shock. Um, so 
so what I, in my experience with clients and, and my own too, I'll be the first to say I've had, I've actually had to call friends of mine and going like, okay, I'm, it's happening to me. I've just written about it and it's happening to me. <laughs> what am I doing? Oh no. Um, so somewhere around day four, sometimes, sometimes day five, you start seeing a different dog and there's almost always some behavioral problem, almost always that you didn't expect. They chewed on the remote control. They peed in the kitchen when they'd been house trained perfectly. You know, they growled at somebody, you know, they just like stuff that you just like, I did not see that coming. And it's so easy to panic. And I think that's when people need the most support. I mean, it's when I need the most support. And I've been there for my friends who are professional behaviorists, dog trainers who've all been through the same thing. So it sounds to me like the two of you, I just credit you because it sounds like you do such a good job being there for people when they most need it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, thumbs up because it's very hard for a lot of places to do that. I mean, it just is, you know, it's an incredible amount of time and effort. Um, it's really hard for a lot of shelters and humane societies to do it. Some of them do, some of them want to, but can't. You know, they don't have the staff, they don't have volunteers, they don't have the expertise, they want to. But um, anyway, if one, if adopters can be told, you know, warned, it's like, there's this thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere around day four to 10 in which you go, oh, I don't, I, I just made a big mistake. What did I do? I don't know. Um, and that that happens to almost everybody, including Dr. Everybody. <laughs> and so one, let them know it'll happen and then give them what you do and yay for you, credit for you, give them the resources to get help because people need help. I mean, I needed help. My professional dog training friends have needed help. We're just there for each other. So, so let them know, please. And this is one of the things I ran into with clients is they wouldn't, they still wouldn't call. Even with people as gracious and careful and thoughtful as you, they still wouldn't call, you know? And then they'd call me at month eight and say, I think we have to rehome this dog or do we not? Right. Did the neighbor right. get or, you know, anyway. Yeah. So. Well, that was one of the goals with the podcast is we've noticed that we've had to like cut back how many dogs we can take because mm -hmm. we're trying so hard to be supportive. And there's you know, a balance between, wow. you know, there's too many dogs to get the support that we give. So kudos to those people who take way more dogs than we do. And I know now that we've been doing this for a year, kind of thanks to you, that there's underserved shelters and small rescues that have yeah. this podcast and then send it to people like, okay, you're introducing a dog, listen to this one with Dr. McConnell, or you're having some aggression, listen to Michael Shikashio. So it's been yeah. so it's been part of our goal is to spread what we do to a larger audience. Yeah. Yay. Yay for you. That's part of why I'm doing it too, because it's <laughs> so important. And, you know, my heart just, I don't know how some people do it. My heart just goes out to people who are just overwhelmed with dogs you know, and are the, and then become overwhelmed themselves. Um, you know, I got, there was a point when I was literally overwhelmed with clients and I was booked three months in advance and, and so I'd see somebody and I needed to see them next week. And I, you know, it was, and it was horribly stressful because 
this dog is going to be put down in two weeks, you know, if you can't. And so you just keep working harder and harder and harder on weekends and at night. And oh, yeah. it's just not sustainable, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, so I hired other people. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, the need um, is great. But yeah. let me, let me ask you a question because I think this is so important for other people in your situation and rescues and shelters who end up foster situations. What do, what do you find people listen to the most? You know, what way of talking to people, of sort of reaching out to people have you found most effective? Like you can read this book, you can read this pamphlet, you can watch this video, you can call us. Do you have a sense of what works best to give people more resources when they need them? Hmm. Libby, what do you think? Well, it seems like answering texts at 9 p.m. is usually the thing that gets people to listen to what I've been saying. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, good for you for yeah. knowing, you know. But, yeah. you know, I I think that, um, gosh, this is, that's, oh, that's a tough question because the tough. way, you know, the way I learn is totally different from the way I think other people learn. And I think that... Um, Oftentimes when we come up on difficult situations in rescue, whether it is between resident dog and foster dog or any behavior wrinkle, shall we call it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, people just more often than not, I feel people want to be heard and understood Mm -hmm. and they need a little personal intercommunication of, Ooh, I know how hard this is. I know how stressful it is. And you know what? We've I've been there before. We've seen it. Here's how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. And here's what we do. And here's what we have found to be successful. Um, and I think that that little piece of making sure that someone is heard when they're expressing a concern is really key. Oh, that yay for you. I mean, that's my experience with clients. That was... That was so important that they had somebody to talk to who actually really listened to them and took them seriously because so mm-hmm. many people don't, their neighbors don't, their grandmother doesn't, you know, the, their uncle says, you just need to get tougher on that dog. You know, where's the electric collar and why are you not dominant? Why are you not doing this? You just don't know what you're doing. And always oh, it's a dog. And, you know, and so these wonderful, wonderful people who, who are providing, you know, this potential phenomenal home for this sentient, beautiful animal um, are just often paddling all by themselves. And so I think the more people in your situation can brainstorm hmm. about how to have them feel listened, you know, I mean, you know, maybe something is, and I don't know if this would work. I mean, I love that you're answering texts at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah. I'm <laughs> working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> and maybe the answer to the text is like, oh, I hear you. I would love to talk about this tomorrow at 10. Yeah. You know, or, or, you know, maybe when the dog goes back with them or home with them, it's, we, you know, we have, um, we have an open mic session. <laughs> we are available between 10 and 12, you know, every, you know, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something, you know, mm-hmm. and anytime you want to call, then please call. And if for some reason you can't call, then, you know, we'll schedule something else. But, but I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Feeling heard mm-hmm. and not alone 
is just it's it's such an important part of of people's well-being in any situation mm-hmm. and, and people who really love dogs getting a new dog getting creating a family member for the next 12 to 16 years possibly mm-hmm. it's huge yeah. it's just huge it's absolutely huge i mean imagine if you had to marry somebody after well it'd be like one of those shows on tv <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, probably, yeah not all yeah. the time yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, I mean, just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a huge thing. So yay for you for letting people feel heard and like they're not alone, you know, and that there's hope, you know. Yeah. So someone who is struggling with um, a dog, integrating a dog into their home and, you know, they, they do need the support that we're offering and they're stressed and they don't know if it's going to work. Um, how long would you advise people to give it? And Mm -hmm. is there a point when, you know, we can definitively say this isn't going to work out? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question. And that point varies completely from Mm -hmm. family to family, you know, but they need to be asked that question. I mean, I think it's great to ask people that question. And so say they call you and say, um, yes, separation anxiety. That's, as we all know, very often treatable and a big pain in the ass to treat. I mean, it's just <laughs> in the butt. There's no way around it. Um, so say the dog has separation anxiety. And, you know, people come to me, for example, they've had the dog for nine months and it has separation anxiety and it's just ruining their life. I mean, you know, it really can. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, it's just really messing up their life. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. Um, so I will get together with them. I would get together with them and then sort of do the usual interview, go through what looks like the best practice for them, for that dog, for that family, and then say, how, how long do you have, you know, what would it be like to work on this for another six weeks? Do you have six weeks? Do you have six weeks of energy? And I will tell you that I had no small number of clients who by the time, time they came to me, they were done. They were done. They were just, by the time they got in my door, they were done. Sometimes they didn't make the appointment until they were done. Sometimes they were done two weeks before they got in, you know, but they were done. And so I think one of our jobs as people in that kind of situation is if you can, if it's, if you read people well enough, and I think it's critical in this, in this business to be able to do this, that, if you read people well enough and you start getting the sense like they're just done is you need to give them permission or you need to ask them, say, you know, I don't know what's in your head. I can't imagine, but I got to tell you, listening to you, it just feels like you're done, you know, yeah, you need yeah. to be done. And I've had people just burst into tears, mm. just burst into tears, sobbing. It's like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That you're not doomed. You're not stuck. There are things right. to do. You know. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so one figuring that they're not done out is critical, or if they are helping them with that, because so many people who came to me felt so guilty, just overwhelmed with guilt, and it was all their fault, and they hadn't tried hard enough. When there were, you know, I had so many clients who had a 
one-year-old baby and a dog was terrified of little kids, just terrified of them. And it was not going to get fixed until the kid was five, you know, and they just felt like, you know, I'm betraying this individual. So people need help with that. But so, but I will ask people, you know, here's what I suggest. I, I would like to see what's happening after three weeks. So, so can, can you go three weeks? You know, um, one of the generic things I would tell people is a lot of people only wanted to see me once, which is always challenging. So I, what I would suggest to them is here are the things I would try. Please, please get back to me. You know, I'll help you any way I can without an appointment about how it's going. But if you're feeling desperate, but you can't give up on the dog yet. I mean, that's, I saw so many people who were so ambivalent. They were so torn. They were in so much pain. I love this dog like life itself. And I can't live like this. So I would, I would suggest, I would say, okay, here's some things to try. Here's some resources for help. Here's a support system for you. And then don't decide anything today. Don't decide anything tomorrow. Your goal is going to be to work on this day by day until a month from now. Set a date. Say, I'm going to work on this as hard as I can. I'm going to do everything I can for a month. And if I can't fix it, then I'm done. And it gives seem to give them a lot of um, respite to have a, a date on it, to be like, okay, I can try this for this long. So often people feel just trapped. Like yeah. I'm trapped in this for the rest of my life and there's no right. No way out. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I think we have to recognize how difficult it can be to live in a situation where you have to create and rotate all day, every day, and the dogs just aren't getting along. And we, you know, we've had dogs being fostered in those types of situations or adopted into a situation where, you know, okay, try it for a couple more weeks, a couple more weeks, and it's not getting better. And it looks like, okay, this might be the long-term answer. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. I would say it's not for most people. Right. right. Like that, you mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's can be really stressful. I have had clients. I have a friend who had four extremely large dogs who could have killed each other in a microsecond. Mm-hmm. Um, had two males who were going to do that. I talked with them at length. I said, I'm really worried because one forgetting one door, you know, you've got mm-hmm. a possible death on your hands. That was years and years and years and years ago. Those dogs are long gone. There was never an incident because they never mm-hmm. forgot to shut the door, you know, or the gate or whatever. But that's really hard for most of us, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm way too, I'm a little absent-minded sometimes. And, um, and especially families, you know, you get one person who could do it, but what about, what about her? What about him? What about the three kids? You know, and that's when things get really complicated is when you've got a family, you've got a bunch of kids and the kids are friends and, you know, that gets really, really hard to manage. So that's a huge part to me of one, what family should this dog go to, mm-hmm. you know, and how, how, much consistency is is critical. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody forgets to shut a door and, you know, somebody gets a little grumpy or something, big deal. If somebody forgets to sh- shut a door and a dog's going to die, you know, that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, that's different. You know, we all, we all 
take risks when we get in the car. You know, we all take risks with COVID, you know, a certain extent. I mean, some of us a lot um, less than others, but nonetheless, um, if you're just not sitting in your house for the last two years and haven't left, you're taking risks. We decide to take those risks because the risks are low enough that mm -hmm. it's worth it. Um, so again, so. But like you said earlier, our dogs can't decide to take the risk. You know, the, the dog who is on the receiving end of aggression can't, can't decide to take that risk. Right, right. So if somebody's thinking about bringing in a new adopted dog or a foster dog, um, what skills would you think that their dog should have before they bring in the dog? Mm, oh, that is a really good question. Well, I'm going to turn it around a tiny bit, if you'll forgive me. Okay. And go back to something I said earlier is what skills should the human have? Mm. So, you know, I'm back on my soapbox about reading dogs, you know, because it's just not rocket science. It's really simple once you learn to do it. And once you learn, you need to do it. You know, we're just we're not good observers about many things because there's so much happening. Right. You know, in the world around us. And um once people learn to actually attend to dogs and go like, oh, he turned his head away. I'm like, oh, he closed his mouth. It's like, oh, he's wagging from the shoulders back. They, one, it's just really fun for them. Their relationship with their dog is so enhanced. But, but so that's the first thing, that's the first skill I would want is I would want to do everything I can. And I know my, my um, certified applied animal beavers friends, we are all on the same page. I've never heard Every time anybody ever says, what is the one thing you want, you wish the public knew more? Almost every single one of us has always answered the same thing. It's like reading dogs, reading dogs, reading dogs. Um, because they're talking to us all the time, they just can't use English. So, so that's, I think that's most important. I think that's job one. And then, and then oh, you're gonna hate this, but, and then it depends. I mean, you know, it depends. I mean, what's, what, what what I would say is you need to is is guardians need to figure out what is really important to them and their lifestyle and this and their dog, including the dog's safety, including your dog's happiness, that that they really need, and then they need to master it. So whatever signals people use and need, they should they should sharpen up before that other dog comes. So, you know, I mean, everybody's different. I live in the country. My dogs are off leash almost all the time. I need a phenomenal recall. I need dogs to stop on a dime when I tell them to. I need leave it. Um, I don't need phenomenal leash manners. I mean, my dogs are perfectly okay on leash, but are they perfect on leash? No, because that's not critical, you know? Um, what's critical is that when I say, when I say stop, you have got to stop. Absolutely. And if I call you to come, you've got to come. And if I say leave it, it's because there's a porcupine in front of you. you know? So so people need to decide what do they what do they need to be happy? What does their dog need to be happy and safe? And then master that because we're all sloppy. We're all human. I mean, my dogs would be way sloppier. I mean, they're not they're so not perfect, believe me. But the things I mentioned, they're pretty damn good about partly because I work dogs on sheep. I have dogs who have to lie down when I tell them to, when they're 400 yards away chasing, you know, prey. 
So I need that. Um, and so it that the fact that I compete and work at that keeps me sharper at doing that. And it's really easy if, you know, you have a family dog, had it for X number of years, the dog doesn't have any behavioral problems, it'd be more easy for the dog, for everybody to get a little sloppy. So it'd be really good to master, sort of sharpen up the cues that you use and need before that dog comes. And I, that's what, that's what I think is most what's important. What, what about you guys? What do you think? That makes sense because I live in suburbia. So I have the total opposite need, which is my, my girl is a Pyrenees. And so when I get a foster, I need to, you know, I don't always have to take them out together, but if I have a fearful foster, which my last foster was fearful, he needed to go out with Piper to have that kind of sense of security. Mm -hmm. And because she's, you know, a Pyrenees and she gets a little frustrated when she sees a dog, if she can't meet it, Mm -hmm. I need her to walk past a dog and leave it and not have any engagement because I don't want to teach the foster dog that there's like agitation around seeing right, other dogs. Right, so, yeah, and, and even just teach it, you know, emotionally, you know, just right. sort of emotional contagion, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we work on that every single day, every walk, and it's been two years and we're like 97% there. Oh, that's you know? fantastic. Yeah, but it's not great. I mean, you know, it's it's not perfect, but that is, so it's like interesting to yeah. like identify your environment. I guess yeah. this comes back to context is everything. So what right. do you need in your environment for your foster dog's experience to be? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that fits. Do you tell, do you tell um, potential fosters, do you suggest did they work on anything specifically? Well, we always, um, we we really focus on management a lot. And I think the biggest thing we focus on is um, manners around dinner time and high value treats and toys and managing that situation so that, you know, so that you don't have a pushy dog pushing into the new foster while they're eating or something like that. So sometimes that's purely a management strategy. And sometimes it is a little training of like, no, we don't jump up when I'm holding a cookie in my hand. That's, that's really smart. I mean, that's really wise because so many problems are overpriced possessions, you know, and food. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. really, really smart. The other thing that you made me think of when you were talking was a whole issue of arousal. Mm. It's, you know, I mean, we all know, you know, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's the cause of so many problems and so much aggression. Um, and so, you know, being able to tell a dog to settle down, you know, mm. settle down. Just, you don't have to lie down right there. You just have to like, just chill out, you know, chill out, settle down. I, if I was queen, I would teach every single new dog owner to teach their dog to settle down. And, you know, some people would never need it. You know, they, mm-hmm. you know, have a 10 year old Labrador. It's <laughs> like sleep half the time. But, um, but I just, I see arousal, you know, given what I did and, and how much aggression I saw, which was 80% of what I did. Um, so much it was based on dogs who couldn't handle arousal, you know, mm. Um, so, so if there was some generic thing, I would also teach them. So I love your point about being mannerly around food and, you know, high value things, you know, mm-hmm. being mannerly, you know, you don't get to be a jerk. Right. <laughs> it's two of you, right? No. Right. And they can mm-hmm. egg each other on as we know, but anyway, but, um, 
But I think being able to tell dogs to just settle down is like mm-hmm. really a great way to keep that arousal down. Arousal down. Hmm. I do agree with you. The arousal around doors, I noticed in your book you talked about, and we have seen that so many times, both in the rescue and with clients of door greetings, just tipping everybody over. So yeah, arousal is definitely one of those things that understanding it and working with it can really help not have a a really friendly dog tip over into aggression out of arousal. Is it interesting that dogs get so incredibly aroused when visitors come? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just talk about context, you know. Um, it's just got to be something about the way our houses are. Home- I don't know. I'm getting off onto a tangent. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ethologically and sort of um, um, just philosophically interesting in a way, you know, why? Why do dogs go so crazy? You know? Yeah. The doorbell rings. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I've I've always thought of it as almost like a jack in the box. There, there's nothing out in nature really where someone just appears wow. out of a hole, like a space in the wall. The wall opens and someone walks in, and they have to make really quick decisions of like, who is this person? What's going to happen next? There's no predictability about it. Very good. That's really a great perspective. And you know, you, what you made me think of is think of the classically the classical conditioning with a doorbell or a knock. You know. Mm-hmm. The bell, you know, the Pavlovian bell. <laughs> actually, it turns out there wasn't a bell, as it turns out in that story. But the the bell, <laughs> you know, is like, I think, you know, and actually, you know, when I work with people whose dogs need to be better mannered when visitors come to the door, I have them ring, the, I have knock or ring the doorbell at the door that visitors usually come through mm-hmm. um, over and over and over and over again without a visitor. Mm-hmm. So you can take away some of that conditioned association. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have a question about what the human's perspective, like what skills should the human have? We feel like over the last decade, there's been a shift where like, you know, pack leader got completely thrown out because of dominance training. But there's got to be maybe some sort of like role for the human to take you know, I don't even know if the word control will be right, but to set things up, like how do you set things up? So you're like, in charge or in the one who makes the decisions in the I, house. I hear your struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, I guess the most important relevant thing I could say to that is what I think dogs need is a sense of security. I think we all need a sense of security, really. Well, um, but. But, you know, think of it from the perspective of dogs. They don't speak English. We are alien creatures. They're living on an alien planet. Basically, you've been moved to a country where nobody looks like you. Nobody speaks your language. Nobody even knows you're speaking most of the time, right? Dogs are always telling us, like, all kinds of things, right? And nobody's listening. Um, so, So it must be really easy to be insecure, right? And I think... I think is a testament to the variability of the canine genome um, that they do as well as they do. You know, it's just sort of phenomenal. Um, but but I think you know, getting back to that that leader, that word, you know, just even the word leader is is so um, fraught now. I think dogs need a sense of security, and the way they get that is being with people 
who are comfortable in their own skin. That's the best way I can say it. I, I, I'll bet anything that you both, both of you know, people who everybody wants to stand beside, who dogs just go to and just want to be with them. Um, I know I'm not one of those people, by the way. I mean, dogs do come to me now, but that's because I've learned over decades and decades and decades. And so most of the time dogs do want to hang out with me, but not because I'm inherently like that at all. But I know people who are just inherently like that. And those are the people. They they they're not neurotic like I can be. They're not you know, they're not full of angst. They're not like, oh, oh, I should do that. I shouldn't do that. They're not always, and I'll this I'll get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it. They're not always fussing over their dog, especially with a high-pitched voice. Um, they're just there. They're just there. They're just comfortable. They're just like, here, here we are. I know what to do. I'm good with that. And if I say the wrong thing, oh, well, it's okay. And the kind of person that we look to when something's going wrong of, uh-oh, what do we do? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, man, I hate to bring this up, but I keep thinking about Zelensky. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, you know, yes. Sorry, sorry to bring that into this conversation. Yeah. You know, it's, this is the world we're living in now. So here yeah. we are. Yeah. You know, this comic actor who seemed to be sort of flailing along in this circumstance, all of a sudden became the person everybody looks to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, there are people who are just like that all the time. I mean, a friend of mine, Peg Anderson, she's a phenomenal sheepdog handler, trialer. She's been in the internationals. I mean, she's really, really good. And she's, of all the people I know, she is the most comfortable with herself as anybody mm-hmm. I've known. And dogs just blossom with her because she's just comfortable. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think that makes a huge difference when, when you're the person who basically says this, I love you, dog. I love you like life itself. And I make the rules because I'm the one with the fingers. (laughs) I'm the one with a credit card to buy dog food. I'm the one who can open the door, you know, and I need I need you to understand that there are social parameters that you need to follow. And I think that can be done and I know it can be done. I've seen it done a million times and I try very hard to do it myself um, to, to be benevolent and compassionate, but also clear. And I think one of the things that's hard for dogs, I mentioned that sort of high pitched fussing, you know, I am, I am a Huge, as you well know, a huge supporter of positive reinforcement. I use it 99.99% of the time, but not 100% because I don't know how. I don't think it's possible. I mean, if I say Maggie, when she just did something silly, I just added something. To, I just added something into the mix to decrease the behavior. We know how right. that's defined, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the P word. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The P word. Yeah. But so, but, you know, being comfortable with that, being comfortable with like, it really is my house, you know? Mm. Um, I think uh, there's, there's a book called Fierce Compassion that I'm reading right now. It's about mm. fierce self-compassion, actually. It's, it's about how 
people, women especially, need to learn to be most both tenderly compassionate and fiercely compassionate. So fierce compassion is when you have to protect your child or or your dog, you know, or set boundaries. And our dogs need boundaries set just like children do, because I see dogs just spin totally out of control. Just and they just seem desperate, just like kids who I used to work with troubled adolescents. And some of these kids were just spinning, 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 spinning. They just needed somebody kindly and benevolent to say, stop, just stop. Just, you don't get to stop. Mm-hmm. And they're like so relieved, you know, they'll fight and fight and fight and fight, but they're so relieved. So this, this very uh, complicated, complex, controversial issue <laughs> of leadership, I think is really more about benevolent confidence and mm. compassion and, and understanding that everybody needs boundaries. And because we are, because we are the humans and they're the dogs, we need to set a lot of those boundaries. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I love that answer. Actually, I'm just kind That's- of mulling it all over. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Like the clear communication, the compassion, mm-hmm. and really setting some boundaries that are kind and useful. And, you know, part of that is also something that I don't see people doing enough lately is is forgiveness. Mm. Is, is one forgiving dogs, for, you know, people have been not forgiving dogs for not being perfect for eons, right? So that's old. But what I saw so much when I was last couple of years that I was seeing clients is I saw people who were so hard on themselves for not being perfect, you know, like I have four kids and I got a dog that I thought was going to be 25 pounds and he's 85 pounds and the kids are one and three and five and six and my mother's sick and I'm working full time. And last night, you know, the dog ran into the table and knocked all of the dinner off of the table. And I actually raised my voice and yelled. It's right, like, right. oh, the yeah. horror. <laughs> <laughs> You're human. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I think people need to be able to forgive themselves for not being perfect and, and being positive a hundred, a hundred, a hundred, a hundred plus percent of the time, because we're human and dogs are very, you know, they can forgive us. You know, I mean, I don't know what happens in a dog's mind in terms of that, but most dogs are pretty damn resilient, you know? And if we, if we're inconsistent one time, we're like, I forgot to do this, or, you know, I was supposed to do that. Or, you know, if we're not perfect trainers, which we are never going to be, then we need to forgive ourselves for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. And it's such good advice to pass along. <sighs> well, we've been talking for over an hour. Should we leave oh it here? I think so. Give ourselves for being human. Yeah. What a concept. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. It is. Yeah, it it is is hard. Yeah, Yeah, I was just thinking about, I think it was the other end of the leash was a huge reality shift for me where I read from you that, you know, we're primates and they're canids. And so it really is hard. And so I think we have to really be understanding of like, this is kind of a complicated thing to to all of a sudden be the primate trying to understand the canids and then bringing in a new one. But with just a little bit of planning and prep and learning the body language, it can go a lot more smoothly. 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Again, it, you know, it's not rocket science and it's really fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. McConnell, thank you so much for taking the time for this awesome conversation today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, we're just so grateful for your time. Well, thank you for asking me and keep up the great work, you guys. You're doing really, really important work. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and James Ede of Be Heard for production. For show notes and transcripts, visit podtotherescue.com. Let us know what you think about this episode on social media. We're at Pod to the Rescue on Facebook and Instagram, and we love connecting with listeners. We'll catch you next time on Pod to the Rescue. Oh, and tell your dog we said hi. Hi.